Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey. Yay. <laughs> I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chu Manchu and our phenomenal producer, Dr. Angela Zane. Say hi, Angela. Hi, everyone. We had an excellent, excellent episode for you. Our guest tonight, Dr. Nivian Blondet, to discuss pediatric hyperbilirubinemia uh, in a little bit older kids. A follow-up to our first hyperbilirubinemia episode. Tons of great pearls. But before we go into the content, hey, Chris, can you yeah. remind us what we do on the show? Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Nivian Blondet. She is a pediatric gastroenterologist and hepatologist practicing in Seattle, Washington. As a liver lover, she's passionate about sharing her knowledge of all things related to hepatic disorders. She has a special interest in fatty liver disease and participates in a multi-center research consortium aimed at investigating this disease in both adults and children. While she loves the Pacific Northwest, having been born and raised in Puerto Rico, she knows that nothing beats spending the day on a warm Caribbean beach. Definitely agree what, with that. What an intro. Uh, she, uh, Dr. Blundet teaches us the clinical importance between unconjugated and conjugated bilirubinemia, um, but also what to look for on the left side of the abdomen in an ultrasound looking for hyperbilirubinemia. And one of my favorite pearls, why patients with Gilbert's disease uh, are likely going to live longer than you. Gilbert's? 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 Someone write in and tell us which one it Gilbert. is. Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> we also talked about Alajili, Alajab. I don't know. Algeos, I think yeah. we should send just get in, on to the episode, guys. <laughs> send in your, your pronunciations of uh, eponyms. See you guys on the other side. Hello, uh, Dr. Nivian Blondet. Thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for spending your time with us. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you. I'm actually really excited about this episode. We're very excited. We had a great first episode uh, that was produced by Dr. Angela Zane about neonatal hyperbilirubinemia and very excited for this show. But before we dive into some content, would love to get to know you better. And first, we'd like to officially ask if it is okay to call you by your first name, uh, Nivian. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Excellent. So, uh, and I'm saying it correctly. Is that right, Nivian? Yes. Good. I, we we want to make it. 100%. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I would love to get to know you better. Our listeners would get to love to get to know you a little bit better. Can you describe yourself a little bit in kind of a, a one-liner or, you know, sharing something about yourself and maybe something you uh, enjoy outside of medicine? Absolutely. So I'm a pediatric hepatologist. So that means that I am a liver lover all the way. I am uh, currently practicing at Seattle Children's and I'm originally from Puerto Rico. So I came uh, far away from home in a sense. Um, so that's where my accent is from. Um, I grew up amongst three brothers. I had to kind of survive and fend for myself, but I'm really proud of that. And I come from a strong line of females. And I'm so proud of that fact because it really builds my confidence and everything else that I do. And I recently became a mom. I have a five-month-old daughter, Cecilia, 
who keeps me busy. So in my spare time, I feed her and bathe her <laughs> and put her to sleep and make sure that she doesn't look jaundiced, actually, every day. I look at her, I'm like, are you looking yellow, child? No? Okay, we're good. I also pal- palpate for splenomegaly and hepatomegaly, but so far, so good. That's great. Felicidades. Congratulations. It's very, Gracias. Uh, very exciting. I would love to know a book that you are either currently reading or you feel like you would recommend to us. You know, I haven't read a non-medical book in forever. So again, going back to my daughter, now we read, I'm actually reading a lot of books that I had never read um, ever, like The Hungry Caterpillar and oh, good, one. Um, good Night Moon. But I think this question nowadays should be like, what Instagram account do you recommend that we follow or what TikTok account? So Yeah, give us a TikTok um, recommendation. What do you got? (laughs) So I'm a geriatric millennial. I don't have TikTok, but I do Insta. But Insta, (laughs) for example, I like this account um, that's called Eats um, Kids Eating Color. And it's a dietitian. I don't know if you've heard about this. I see a lot of fatty liver in my clinic. That's um, my specialty. So we talk a lot about obesity and nutrition and This lady um, is mostly geared for kids that are picky eaters, but really it's the same concepts for our children that have um, issues with obesity and our picky eaters. It's about creating patterns and structures around mealtime and making it like exciting and, um, you know, healthy and nutritious and all that. So I actually um, have been following that account and I like it a lot. Kids eating color. I think it's very um, useful. I second that one. I I, I love that account too. I found it a couple of years ago on a recommendation from one of my um, dietitians in my in my medpeds clinic uh, she was like I was like what are some good good places to f- people to follow and she's like kids in color mm-hmm. and it's I agree it's a wonderful and you know, the thing is she she talks about because she has her own kids that are picky at the same mm-hmm. time and so she's able to show this is what I'm feeding them today it's okay to have some quote unquote less nutritious foods yeah but it's about moderation and making sure that they're able to eat and i i really i really like the way she presents food i like it too awesome so my question is what is the best advice you ever received as a learner you know i think the best advice has been build your community and i actually share that advice with everybody it's so important to have a community of people that support you and that may mean different things for different people right it can be just emotionally it can be sponsorship mentorship not every mentor is right for you so you have to be kind of picky with the community that you build around you but it's so important at every stage from when I was a medical student to college to every every stage of my life. Um, definitely now as an attending, I have people that uh, mentor me and sponsor me. But it's because I've been able to work on building that community. And I tell, for example, your awesome producer, Angela, that it's about building that community and the people that are going to be able to provide you sometimes bad advice and sometimes great advice, but you need people that support you all the way. Because if not, you're going to feel isolated, unfortunately, even if you're surrounded by co-residents or co-fellows or attendings, um, you really need to be surrounded by people that have your best interests at heart. So build that community and work. It's it's something that you have to put effort on, but it's going to pay off. I love that advice. advice. Yeah. And I feel like the podcasting community has been one for me that has been so supportive, including getting to work with Chris for over multiple years. Uh, I feel like we've gone through a lot and uh, continue (laughs) to go through. uh, uh, But um, a lot of the people in the podcast community, we just got back from a national conference and it's, it's a community where people are coming from all over. 
that are doing this work and it's an immediate friendship and it's um, very rewarding to be part of medicine and being part of that community. I love that advice and what a great transition. Um, did you have anything else, Tris? No, I was just saying we should All jump right. right into it. We got a case, right? Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, Angela, you want to help us dive into some content? Oh, yeah, for sure. So our first case is um, you are seeing a three-week-old infant, Johnny Dice, be like what I did there, who was born at full term without complications in the newborn nursery. You know, at this visit, his parents are reasonably overwhelmed with having a new baby, but say things are going well. They do say that his skin seems, quote, a little yellow. So I guess our first question is, when you think of jaundice in older babies or kids or adolescents, how are they different from newborns? And is there an age where you stop thinking of the newborn things you talked about in the last episode and start thinking about something different? That's such a great question, but it's such a loaded question. And I think we need to try to narrow it down a little bit so that um, it makes it easier for everybody, for our audience, which I know includes people from medical students all the way to attending. So Jaundice is just a manifestation that there's excess bilirubin in your body, right? You're accumulating it or you're not metabolizing it correctly or you're overproducing it. And for whatever reason, um, your body is not able to get rid of it quickly. So you accumulate and then you become jaundice. But to me, more importantly, more than even that, that age group is where is this jaundice coming from and what type of jaundice it is? Because once you answer the question, is this an indirect or a direct hyperbilirubinemia, then you can work on your differential and then you can split it into an age group. And I think that's the most important question and it's really going to be the key message of this podcast. What type of bilirubin is this? Is this a direct or an indirect? Once you answer that question, then you can think about your differential. So for example, if it, this is a healthy child that's otherwise growing and it's an indirect hyperbilirubinemia, your differential tends to include more benign process, breast milk, breastfeeding, jaundice, whatever, not hydrating well, maybe the liver is a little bit immature. But when you take that same child, even if they're well-appearing, and at that three to four week age, you tell me that they have a direct or conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, I'm going to start worrying a little bit more. And that to me is a red flag. Why is this baby accumulating this conjugated bilirubin? And then we start thinking about completely different and actually more pathologic processes. Is this an obstruction, an anatomic problem, like for example, biliary atresia? Is this a genetic disease? Is this even a metabolic disorder that wasn't captured in the newborn screen? So again, even before looking at the age, you have to know, is this a conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia or an indirect hyperbilirubinemia? And that actually applies to all age groups. Um, you can have a teenager that looks jaundiced. You have to answer the same question. Is this a direct or an indirect? Because if it's an indirect, even if it's an older child, we still think about relatively benign processes versus if it's a conjugated one. We go back to, mm, there may be something more pathologic happening that may need um, immediate attention, even if they're well-appearing. Obviously, if they're ill, completely different conversation too, but you have to answer that question first. What type of bilirubin is manifesting as jaundice in this patient, if that makes sense? Wait, wait. So I, I have a question, and I get this confused all the time. And I want to ask because in a script, we're talking about conjugate and, and unconjugated bilirubin. What's the difference? And you know, I heard there's something called like a delta bilirubin too. Like, what's what's all this stuff? Chris, this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. So <laughs> let's focus on, I think, the most important one, um, the difference between conjugated and direct. Because I think that most people, you know, conjugated and unconjugated in general is um, if they're soluble or insoluble in water. 
But to me, the main difference that we really need, need to establish is the difference between conjugated and direct because they're not the same, actually. And a lot of people um, interchange them like I did in this podcast. I said conjugated or direct. So the difference between the two of them is that they're measured by different assays, actually. And um, the direct bilirubin, even though uh, we say that the indirect is the one that tends to be bound to albumin, there's a component of direct bilirubin that's actually bound to albumin. And why is that important? Because albumin has a very long half-life, right? It has half-life of 21 to 28 days. So once you have, uh, for example, a hemolytic process or something that generates a bilirubin load, that bilirubin is going to bound to albumin. And that's going to drive your direct component, actually. And it's going to take a long time to clear. Versus your conjugated, it's a little bit more of an active metabolite of that bilirubin. So think about it as ionated cal um, ionized calcium and then your total calcium. Ultimately, you know, they're, total, they're a measurement of calcium in your body. But your ionized calcium is going to be a little bit more of an active metabolite that you can trend quicker. Versus your total is going to be bound to that albumin, right? And it can go up and down depending on the albumin concentration. Same as you wouldn't trend ionized calcium one day and the next day you would trend the total. You can trend the total calcium and you're going to see the trends, but you cannot do the opposite. So the same goes for the conjugated and the direct. So you can trend the conjugated bilirubin and it's probably going to clear faster in a hemolytic process, for example, or in a sepsis or an acute hepatitis even, versus that direct is going to take uh, longer to clear. Importantly, most of the labs, even if people say, oh, order a conjugated bilirubin, once you try to order it, really what you're ordering is a direct bilirubin. But you could technically order a conjugated. And the most important, again, is focusing trend one or the other. They're still going to tell you a lot of, you know, if it's a direct component tends to be related to liver disease, they're still going to give you great information. But the important thing is not to compare. And that delta bilirubin, going back to your question, is that specific component that's bound to albumin. We don't use it clinically ever um, because you either measure the direct that includes that delta component or the conjugated, but it's always good to know because people use it interchangeably and they're really not. But as long as you know what you're trending, that's the most important part. I don't know. That was a long answer to I say think, that they're not the same. <laughs> I think this is great because I don't know that I recognize that uh, they were different. And I think one thing that would be helpful is uh, going back to kind of the physiology. Could you walk us through the path of, of bilirubin through the red blood cell, through the liver, the conjugation and its stretion? Because I remember learning it in a very kind of linear pathway. I don't know if that's right, but I've always thought of it that way. And that unconjugated to conjugated made it. Um, Absolutely. That, and I think that would be super helpful. And just to keep it simple, it's just like you say. So um, bilirubin is a byproduct of your um, red blood cells being metabolized, right? Like they have their own half-life and they serve its purpose. And then the spleen is like, mm, it's time for you to die and uh, thank you for your service. So then it creates that bilirubin and it actually gets transported to the liver in an unconjugated way. Now, that unconjugated bilirubin in our magical liver gets conjugated. And once it gets conjugated, it's able to be excreted into your intestine. You actually poop it up. Now, there are different processes that you can either overload the liver, for example. So let's say going back to the hemolysis um, or sometimes infections, you're generating so much bilirubin that the liver is not able to conjugate quickly. But if you give it a little bit of time, probably is going to turn from unconjugated to unconjugated and then get gets excreted. And again, 
you know, that can take a couple of days. Sometimes you might even create a stone on the way because the gallbladder also gets a little bit um, irritated depending on what the process is. Versus a conjugated process in general tells me that there's something going on with the liver that it's unable to fully excreted. So we think more about meta, um, sorry, obstructive processes, sometimes even hepatocellular diseases that are unable to bring that bilirubin into the canoniculi to get excreted. So that's why it's so important to say, wait, is it unconjugated or un- or conjugated? So that you can start kind of like thinking, where where is the problem starting? Is it starting just on the blood? Is it a, a systemic process or is it something more related to the liver? And when you say that it's predominantly conjugated or unconjugated, is there a specific ratio or threshold that makes you feel like, okay, this is officially a direct hyperbilirubinemia? Absolutely. So in general, people say 20%. Um, If you have 20% of your component being direct or above, then we call it a direct hyperbilirubinemia. There are other people that are more conservative, and I like this too. Um, If you have any number above two, because you can have a total bilirubin of 50, right? Um, So your 20% is going to be pretty high. But um, anything that's above two, an absolute number in general, we're like, "Hmm, what's going on? Or on the contrary, you can have a total bilirubin that's uh, three, you know, and then your direct component is two. So anyway, in general, 20% of your total or above two, then we consider a direct um, hyperbilirubinemia or cholestasis. That's going to be the official. It's going to be a cholestatic jaundice. So if we have this patient who's coming in and, and you know, we, they look like they're a little jaundice, you know, re- say regardless of age, what are the things I'm getting from history from the parents, from family history? Like what, what are the things that I'm, I'm trying to get as I'm trying to work up this patient? Great question. So I think in general, um, history, uh, it's so important. Um, exposures, for example, has this child been sick? Um, is there any history of infection, history of failure to thrive, difficulty eating? Is this child well appearing? Did they take any Tylenol? Tylenol is one thing that um, leads to unfortunately liver failure, any traveling exposure, any family history of weird diseases, like um, even heart disease that we can see sometimes with um, Wilson's disease, any history of autoimmune disease in the family. That's where it gets a little bit tricky sometimes because your age, that's where it's going to come into play. You know, it's not the same to see a three to four week old with jaundice versus that 16 year old with jaundice, right? But going back, there's a lot of things that happen at any age, like infection. So you want to try to rule out things that um, you could treat and things that are a little bit more worrisome. Any history of right upper quadrant pain or family history of gallstones as well. Typically, again, more in the older patient. Um, was your newborn screen normal? A lot of the parents are like, oh, I don't know. Probably if you didn't get called about it, um, it's normal. But all those facts are going to be super, super important. And a quick follow-up on that, and I don't know why I'm stuck on a pathophysiology phase right now, but the mechanism of sepsis or an infection, how is that leading to an increase uh, hyperbilirubinemia? Is that from red cell turnover or liver damage? Great question. So it can be from both, actually. So um, it can be from just systemic um, inflammation, right, leading to just breakdown and sepsis-like picture and all that happens. But also, there are molecules in the uh, bacteria that actually slows down your excretion of your bilirubin. So uh, the more common ones in terms of bacteria, the gram-negatives on the 
cell membrane, there's LPS that actually slows down um, how quickly you can excrete the bilirubin from your liver. So that's something that um, we see quite commonly in gram-negative bacteremia, the patients tend to get jaundiced. Interesting. And it would be a conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Is that right? Correct. In general. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Chris, you see that T? Yeah, you see that T? learning. Now, is, is uh, there a difference like with, with age as people's livers change and metabolize different? Like, you know, can you see different types of uh, likelihood of jaundice for different etiologies based on age? Absolutely. Um, so in newborns, um, even though we worry and some conditions can be pretty catastrophic, there are other conditions that are just related to immaturity of the liver. Um, and then they self-resolve or conditions that are relatively benign that just with changes in diet and others. And it's just how your liver is uh, metabolizing those things at that stage in life. And as you can remember, the liver actually produces red blood cells at some point in your um, development. And while you're undergoing that transition and that the liver doesn't have um, as much capacity to metabolize things, that it's still kind of in the fetal period, you can actually get... Uh, hepatitis and even a, a jaundice because the liver is unable to work with being independent uh, human real life kind of thing. So yes, there are things that are a little bit more uh, age related that can be benign and self-resolve depending on the age. Those kids tend to be uh, healthy appearing in general, not so much when you have a little bit more of a pathologic process. Um, you tend to look a little bit different, more signs maybe of chronic liver disease. So going back to our patient in clinic, I'm curious to what kinds of symptoms would alert you or what physical exam findings. So they say, you know, do they have to say I'm having belly pain or I'm itching or some patients will say my urine's really dark or my stool is really pale um, and, you know, how dark is too dark? You know, what do, what do you look for? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, so let's focus on a couple of those. So for example, the stool color in general, it's if it's pale, it's sign of an obstruction. And that's so important in the newborn period because there's this disease called biliary atresia. Um, that is just an anatomic problem that your bile ducts didn't develop, so you're unable to get that bilirubin into your poop, like we talked about. So that stool color is so important to ask the parents, but you also need to be very specific when you ask. You have to say, don't say just yellow. Is the poop yellow? Or Because pale yellow is still yellow, but it's pale, right? So we've run into this um, problem. I just wanted to add that little pearl. Um, be very specific when you ask about the stool color. Not just say, what color? Yellow, brown? What type? Is it mustard or not? Um, so yes, definitely stool color is important. Um, most importantly, really in the newborn period, again, to rule out that biliary atresia, because you can actually have intermittent pale stools at, um, at a time of illness. And it's just, again, that bilirubin being a little bit slow to get rid of your body, and then it will at some point come out and your stool colors will come back to normal. So Pale stool color is not always a sign that, oh my God, there's something ominous happening. So how many of those in the setting of the big picture? Um, so that's one on, on history that I wanted to point. Abdominal pain is so nonspecific, right? Like we all have, I have abdominal pain almost, almost every day. But if you localize it to the right upper quadrant, I'm thinking more, again, obstruction. Is there something, a hepatitis that's causing inflammation of the liver? Absolutely very important to localize the pain. Um, things that I look for that I actually 
look and see on physical exam is the presence of splenomegaly. That's one of my favorite things to teach medical students on how to palpate a large spleen because you can actually have cirrhosis that has gone undiagnosed for years and you compensate. The liver is a medical organ. It will work really, really hard until it cannot um, hold on any longer, but you can have indirect signs that the liver has been stiff and getting congestion. And one of the main ones that we see is that large spleen. So if you have a large spleen, regardless of where your liver numbers are, because again, going back to cirrhosis, and I know it's not the main point of this um, podcast, but if you have a child that has splenomegaly and now they're suddenly jaundiced, even if the liver enzymes are, are normal, you have to really investigate the liver. And your liver, if you're cirrhotic, you're not going to be able to palpate it. So it's going to be small and nodular. So full abdominal exam, not just like, oh, touch the right upper quadrant. Oh, the liver, I cannot feel it, then move on. No, no, no. Do a really full abdominal exam. Check for ascites as well, which can go um, silent. And in terms of jaundice, actually, sometimes when the skin's col skin color is a little bit darker, it may be a little bit harder to identify if that jaundice is really visible or not, right? Like the mom might bring the kiddo, I think they look jaundice, and you're like, mm, let me see. Look at their eyeballs and actually the inside of their mouths. You can see the yellow discoloration inside their mouth, and that's a really important thing to another pearl to know where to look for that jaundice. I think this is super helpful. And I think I love your tip about the language about being specific with parents. Um, Naveen, you and I have talked about like what bilious stuff really looks like, like what shade of green versus yellow. And in a similar way with urine or stool, like what pathologically, like what does a pale stool look like? Does it really look like clay or is it like white? And then with dark urine, you know, you can have dark urine, you're dehydrated. Like what does that look yeah. like? And then uh, separately, I would love to get your tips on actually learning how to assess for splenomegaly or hepatomegaly on an exam. That's okay. So <laughs> going back on the stool color, um, yes, clay color, um, it's the typical description that we use, but there's actually apps that you can take pictures of the poops and it tells you if it's abnormal or normal. What? I think, I what? know, I think it's called... G poop G-I-M-D or something. Oh my God. Now we're, I'm going to have to Google it, but, um, it's actually created by the, by a pediatric, um, gastroenterologist. Um, and you can take pictures and upload them to the app and it tells you if it's normal or abnormal. In some Asian countries, actually, this disease is like biliary attrition so common that when you walk out of the hospital, you walk out with a stool card so that you can see which colors are normal or abnormal, which is so useful. But yes, going back to answer your specific question, clay color is um, a little bit more worrisome. But to me, anything, honestly, in a newborn that's not as bright as mustard or has a really intense color to it, especially if the baby looks jaundiced, I'm gonna worry. If you say pale anything, I'm gonna worry. And then physical exam. Splenomegaly can be so hard to assess. And why is that? Because sometimes the spleen is so large that if you start touching kind of in the middle of the abdomen, it's gonna feel so even that you're gonna miss it. So the most important thing when assessing to uh, when assessing a patient for splenomegaly, first make sure that they're calm. Some kids, like as soon as you touch your belly, they tense and it's like, you know, forget about getting a good physical exam. Even grab their hands, but start from the hip bone and then go up slowly, slowly, slowly. And again, use their own hand to kind of like guide you through that process. So you have to start really, really, really low and then go up. And actually the same applies for the liver, but rarely the liver gets so big that goes down, but the spleen can enlarge like a balloon. And if they're big and you don't start low enough, you're going to miss it. 
Now, I have point-of-care ultrasound available to me in my clinic. Is this some a place where I could pull that out and be like, oh, yeah, that looks like a large spleen? Is, it, is, is that something that uh, a practitioner could do? Absolutely. Yeah, we love ultrasounds. And actually, I was going to mention at some point, hopefully, that when you get an ultrasound for any patient that's jaundiced, try not to limit it to the right upper quadrant, because that's a lot of things that people do, right? Like, they're like, oh, it's jaundice, it's the liver, let me just take a look at deliver right upper quadrant. But if you have the availability of doing so, consider getting a full abdominal ultrasound. It can tell you if the spleen is large. You can even sometimes see signs of chronic liver disease. You can see abnormal vasculature, for example, um, things that you might miss with just a limited right upper quadrant. They're great, and they're going to tell me a lot of information about the biliary system and the um, hepatic parenchyma. Um, but you should consider uh, doing a full abdominal ultrasound. Now, obviously, that's a very biased answer from me, a practitioner that works in a th tertiary center, right? Um, so if we're foc focusing on cost effectiveness, get that history, that great physical exam. If you're certain that you don't have splenomegaly, then maybe you can start with that um, right upper quadrant limited. But if it's Iffy already, you cannot assess for splenomegaly, the patient is jaundiced, the hepatic parenchyma looks iffy on the ultrasound, get a full abdominal ultrasound. Great. So, and I would love to go back to our, our case of Johnny Dice, who's an infant, and let's say is well appearing, does on exam appear to have a little bit of a yellowish tint, enough that we pull the trigger and get labs. We should talk about what a full lab workup was, but let's jump to the, the last page of the book and say that it is a unconjugated or uh, indirect bilirubin, whatever assay we have available. What is then your approach to a, we'll break it down and say, if that's the first kind of big pathway, let's say we have a patient with unconjugated uh, hyperbilirubinemia. What's the general approach? What should we be thinking? What should be our next steps? So to be honest, goes back to history and physical exam. If this is a perfectly healthy well-appearing baby that's growing, it's feeding great, no signs of illnesses. Let's say that they're breastfeeding, just to add a little bit of extra information. As long as the baby looks perfect, let them be. Now bring them back, bring them back in a week or two and see how that jaundice is going. If the jaundice is still visible, repeat the labs and see where they are. Because then if it's still persistent past that four or five week of age, um, you should consider doing something about it to prove if it's something more pathologic, like a crickler in a jar that will keep your bilirubin high. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be uh, something that you need to send them to see a hepatologist right away, but bring them back to the clinic. Make sure that they're still growing. Now, if they're still breastfeeding, it can be related to that breast milk. Consider doing a trial of formula, but that can be devastating to some families. And to be honest, again, as long as the baby is growing and it's looking very well, let them be, let them bond with the mom and let mom have that experience. Also on the contrary, there are some poor moms. I recently went through this. Breastfeeding is the hardest thing in the history of mankind. Like, I feel like nobody told me this and I'm a gastroenterologist by practice, right? And I'm like, wow, breastfeeding is really hard. Offer mom some formula and tell her, you know what, let's just supplement. Let's make sure even if the baby is growing and this poor mom is staying up all night, offer some formula to that poor mom. Be like, you know, breast is best, but really fed is the bestest ever. So there's two things that you can do. Again, if it's well appearing, do nothing. Let them be, but bring them back to clinic. Or even offer some formula and see how it goes. 
Um, if it resolves and you have your answer, if it doesn't, then just bring them back and see if it's something that you need to trend. Like, again, quick learn Najara and send them to a hepatologist. But if it's a direct one, then that's an, a whole nother combo. So I, I, I always have trouble remembering all these eponymous things. What What's Krigler Najar? Can you remind us what this is? Because I, I, I just I cannot remember. It's a really rare disease. So pretty much you don't have the ability to conjugate that bilirubin. There's two types. There's Krigler Najar 1 and 2. And how I remember which one is the bad one. So 1 is less than 2. So in 1 you have less ability to conjugate and tends to be uh, more severe and the jaundice will not go away versus in curriculum Najar 2, you have some ability to conjugate and you can actually treat with medications that you can induce those um, little receptors that you have that are actually working. You can induce them and you can just do uh, medications. But it's an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia past the newborn age when you worry about kernicterus, which is that bilirubin crossing your blood-brain barrier and causing um, really serious uh, effects in your brain. Past that newborn age, you can have curricular Najar type 2, and you can use medications on and off, and it's really ultimately sometimes just cosmetic, um, treating that jaundice. So. And can I ask, how does a hepatologist diagnose treatable Najars or another one, Gilbert, I think, if they're older, we could talk about, but I feel like those are ones that I've learned about, but I don't know what's the... Is it a blood test, a genetic test? How do you, how do mm -hmm. if a patient's in your clinic, what are you doing to try to decipher one of those uh, rare illnesses? Great question. So there are genetic panels. Actually, there's this panel called the jaundice chip that now tests for a lot of genetic diseases, and it will give you a lot of information about. Really, it's really really good about um, diseases that will cause jaundice, but. We really only use it on certain populations that um, we're worried about this jaundice, like this younger child that it's not biliary atresia. So you're going back to the four, five, six week old that you're trying to figure out what the cause of cholestasis is. And you've done your ultrasound, you've done your liver biopsy, for example, like now you're in the hepatology world and you're not able to find a diagnosis. And then you tend to move to the genetic panel. Now, in an older child that I'm thinking about Jill it's actually a very clinical diagnosis and it's so cost effective to just say let me get the labs going back to good history and physical exam you have a teenager that's otherwise healthy and this jaundice happens um, during time of illnesses there's other family members maybe in the other members of the family that also have jaundice intermittent with illness and they look great I say it's probably Gilbert's but I, I won't send a genetic test because it's really a clinical diagnosis excellent excellent what if we have patients that, you know, now let's first, are there any other unconjugated type of hyperbilirubinase that we need to discuss before we move on to the other types that you feel is important? No, I really don't think so. Because in general, again, the unconjugated hyperbilirubinemias, we worry a lot in the newborn period just because of that risk of kernicterus. After that, you can have an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia and it's probably not going to be, it's not that it's normal, right? Because nobody that's jaundiced, it's like, oh yeah, you're normal, you're fine, you can ignore. No, you have to assess them. But they're probably not going to lead to long-term problems. Actually, those Gilbert patients, for example, they 
there's studies that say that they live longer and they have less heart Whoa. disease. Yes, I, I tell my patients all That's the time. Cool <laughs> we don't know why. And people think it's because they take care of themselves, right? With Jill Byrne, you trigger those jaundice episodes. You don't, you don't feel well at times of illness when you're not hydrated, when you're not resting well. So they tend to take care a little bit better um, of themselves, that. but they have less um, mortality in general than the regular population. They live longer, so they're going to outlive us all, even though they get jaundice intermittently and they don't feel good when they're jaundiced. And can I quickly ask before moving on to Chris's next question, which I'm on the same wavelength and I, I know what it's going to be. Uh, can someone though, if, if like, uh, would you be able to elevate your hyperbilirubinemia to a point from like a really bad bruise or a bad enough autoimmune hemolysis? Like are those things that could present with hyperbilirubinemia? You know, it has to be a really big bruise, like a big accumulation of blood, like what we see in cephalohematomas, for example, um, but not necessarily just from a big bruise. I don't want to say it's impossible. I've never seen it, but um, it has to be a really large accumulation. But um, with hemolysis, absolutely. Absolutely. You can have um, an acute hemolytic uh, episode that will lead to a hyperbilirubinemia. Chris, you want to, you, you, or okay. Angela, one of you guys take it away. I think we know where the next question yeah. is, and I'm excited for it. <laughs> go, Angela. Go for it. Um, I think, okay, so if that's, if that's unconjugated, which sounds like a lot of them are, I mean, I think that's interesting, first of all, is that I feel like I thought of hemolytic as a separate bucket of this kind of jaundice or this kind of bilirubin, but it sounds like a lot of the processes in unconjugated have a small element of hemolysis. And you might not always want to like work them up or get those kinds of labs. Yeah. And really it's because you're overloading the liver, but the liver is, it's like a starfish. You can even cut pieces of it, right? Like in living donation, just give it a little bit of time and it will regenerate. So you can overload it with even an infection or drug-induced liver injury. For example, we see it with chemotherapy. A lot of our unfortunately our oncology patients or our heart patients get jaundice at different types of their illness. And as long as you give it a little bit of time, the liver will start working again and will clear your um, unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Just give it a little bit of time. So yes, a lot of the illnesses that will lead you to that unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, the most important thing is that it's not from a truly liver disease. It's probably from another process and the liver is just unable to handle it. But give it time and it probably will. So then let's talk about diseases of the liver and of the gallbladder. So you, we've alluded that if it is indirect or unconjugated, you're a little more reassured. But let's say you do um, the labs and it is actually an elevated direct or conjugated bilirubin. Um, what do you think, you know, you've, you've kind of talked about it. What do you think of then and what might you work up? So we've talked about this so many times, history and physical exam. What's the age of the patient? Are they looking ill or not? If we're thinking about a younger child, an infant, the first thing that you have to rule out is uh, this anatomic problem called biliary atresia. And why is that? Why is it so important? And I keep mentioning this disease is because this is one of the only diseases that their outcomes are tied of when you actually diagnose the disease and when you actually intervene on it. So children that have biliary atresia are unable to get rid of that bilirubin um, from their liver and pass it on their intestines. So they actually need surgery. And the earlier you do the surgery, the better the outcome. So even though it might not be the most common disease, is the one that I'm 
always going to think about when I see a three or a four week old with jaundice and actually a cholestatic jaundice. In that age group also, you have to think about metabolic diseases. Most of the serious ones are going to be caught on your uh, newborn screen, but there are others that aren't caught. Infection is also going to be something that I'm going to think about the newborn period because they can be well, relatively well appearing and they can have a urinary tract infection, for example. When we think a little bit about older children with a cholestatic process, we are still thinking about infection, but then we start thinking about maybe some other metabolic processes. So Wilson's disease, for example, I'm going to be thinking more in a teenager person. Autoimmune hepatitis, autoimmune diseases, I'm also going to be thinking in a little bit of an older child. Uh, So that's where your age group also uh, comes into play. Are they more on the younger side or are they more on the older side? Because I'm not going to be thinking about autoimmune hepatitis in a four-week-old, for example, but I'm going to be thinking about it even as young as a three-year-old maybe. I would love to ask a follow-up on the biliary atresia. I know you mentioned the earlier the intervention, the better. The intervention, is that's the Tessai procedure, is that correct? And is yes. that something that there's a cutoff? I remember, I remember learning about the Tessai procedure from a resident who thought the name of the procedure was called a failed Tessai. <laughs> as a, uh, because we always presented the patient status post-failed so Tessai. And I, I think, I, I don't know about others, but my experience was that we saw failed to size more than successful to, to size. Are those successful procedures if you do them earlier or are they just not the best we have, but yeah. not that great? That's a really good question. And this might be a little bit controversial because it is actually controversial um, in our uh, world. So the Kasai procedure is one of the only surgeries that's really tied to the experience of the surgeon. Yes, uh-huh. absolutely. It's tied to the age as well. In general, if you have a child with biliary atresia without a Kasai past 60 days of life, um, it's going to be really hard for them to clear that um, jaundice. Even if you have the best surgeon in the history of mankind, um, probably that liver is going to be already a little bit cirrhotic. And actually, it's contraindicated if they look um cirrhotic or if they have signs of portal hypertension to do a Kasai on a child, they're not going to heal. They're actually going to have worse outcomes. But you really need a skilled surgeon to do a Kasai. I hope I didn't out our PEDS GI I was going to say, throw throw them under the bus there, Justin. It's controversial because, um, you know, you might think that any general surgeon um, can do a portoenterostomy. And while that is true, you really want somebody that's skilled on babies so that you don't have any, any other complications. Now... You can have the most skilled surgeon and you can do this Kasai in a four-week-old and things happen. And with biliary atresia, there's still a lot that we don't know. So even though the full name actually is extrahepatic biliary atresia, which most people think that the disease is only located um, in the extrahepatic biliary tree, we know that there's still inflammation and fibrosis and um, things that happen inside the liver, even if you have uh, a great, great Kasai. But... The older you are, the uh, less skilled of a surgeon, unfortunately, that you're um, exposed to and that does your CASI, the higher the likelihood of you needing a liver transplant early on. So liver transplant's really the only other option if once you fail a CASI, is that correct? That is correct. And 
we love liver transplants and I actually never say that liver transplant is like, oh, the, you know, the worst case scenario or this is because I actually think about liver transplant as part of your treatment strategy for biliary atresia. We're so good at liver transplants nowadays that it's part of the treatment strategy. I never see it as a failure, a child needing a liver transplant after their failed kasai. Gotcha. Now, I know you said that biliotresia is sort of a very small subsection of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia and that it's something we should keep an, uh, keep an eye on. So one thing we we always talked about as a resident was we worried about allergial syndrome. Yeah, allergial. And we and, we, and, and so we, we always had these kids that came in, uh, you know, they were jaundiced. We worried about biliotresia, and then we're getting these X-rays on their spine all the time, looking for and butterfly averts and abnormal and, faces. Something- you're like abnormal faces. Like, are they abnormal yes! faces or not? Is this oh something that we we should have been doing all along, or is this like so <laughs> never, rare never that like sucked. I'm. I've put it on my differentials in med students, so would love yeah. the answer. <laughs> That's so awesome. I actually didn't know, like, when I was a medical student, I don't think I knew about allergies. So allergies is definitely another disease that I think as a hepatologist, um, what's the difference? And this is going to be super nerdy, but it all goes back to where the problem is. So both allergies and biliary atresia, you have problems getting rid of your bilirubin from your liver, but the process is different. So Justin, you were talking about the pathophysiology, so let's nerd it out. In biliary atresia, it's extra hepatic. You're not going to have uh, that biliary system outside your liver well-developed. So you cannot get rid of your bilirubin, right? So actually, when you do a liver biopsy, there's ductular proliferation in the liver, those ductules inside the liver, they're multiplying, trying to get rid of that bilirubin. They're like, oh my God, maybe I'll find a pathway here. And so they multiply. Versus in allergy, actually, it's paucity of bile ducts. Your bile ducts inside your liver, they don't form well and you cannot get rid of that bilirubin. And that's a pathophysiology and actually the main difference between the two diseases. Now, Biliary atresia in general is isolated to the liver. Now you can have cytosine versus, there's actually syndromic biliary atresia, but those are rare versus allergial is a syndrome. So most of our patients have other organ involvement. They can have this thing called posterior embryotoxin. They can have the butterfly vertebrae. They can have vascular anomalies. So it's more of a syndrome. And I actually don't have two children with allergial that are the same. The problem that we also have sometimes with the allergies is that, unfortunately, we treat them as a biliary atresias, and you follow kind of like the same pathway. And why is that? Because the biliary atresias, you really want to diagnose them early. So then you end up doing kind of like the same labs and the same pathway for the cholestatic kids to make sure that you rule out the biliary atresia right away. So would I personally do an x-ray on a cholestatic baby right away? Probably not. So kudos to you, Chris, that you're getting x-rays, but I probably, that wouldn't be my first line um, kind of diagnostic imaging to get, um, neither in the outpatient or for my own kids that I'm undergoing evaluation for cholestasis, but kudos to you. And they do have abnormal faces. And once you see um, enough allergies, you're like, oh, this baby has allergies even before you get the labs back. And I wanted to clarify one on uh, the final diagnosis. You had mentioned um, things like autoimmune hepatitis, Mm -hmm. and I imagine things like viral hepatitis, or you mentioned also um, acetaminophen overdose. Is -hmm. that just damage to the liver cells leaking hyperbilirubinemia, or is there some other pathophysiology that's explaining how that would work? And again, I guess, would that be more of a 
direct. It seems like that one seems like it would be less clear what the predominant type of bilirubin is. Could you talk about the hepatitis-related hyperbilirubinemia? Great question. So um, it really depends on the um, etiology where the uh, bilirubin will accumulate. But in general, the even though it really doesn't make sense that hepatocellular injury, you will be like, oh, then you cannot conjugate. So you're going to have an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. In general, the hepatocellular injuries, what um, damages is that ability of the actually conjugated bilirubin to get out of the liver, even though you can have, uh, again, you would think, oh my God, why is my unconjugated not accumulating? But it's actually that mechanism of actually getting um, out of the liver. But it depends on the injury that the pathophysiology is a little bit different. So it's really hard to say in general, this is what happens, but Main point is, if you have a conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia, it's probably more likely related to a true liver disease than not. And we've very much focused on the bilirubinemia, but this, I imagine, is also where things like an AST, ALT can come into play to determine if there's hepatocellular damage. Is that fair to say? Are there other labs that we should also be looking at? Absolutely. And this is another one of my favorite things to talk about. So what are LFTs, right? Like we tell our medical students, our residents, I'm like, Angela, I get LFTs. But what are really LFTs, right? So in general, what do we say? So that's your ALT and ASD, your ALKFOS, your GGT, albumin. But really, most of those tell me zero about the function of the liver. ALT and ASD tell me nothing except that there's some inflammation. So you can be cirrhotic and you have a super burned out liver, and you're not going to elevate that ALT and AST. Um, GGT tells me a lot about the actual integrity of the bile duct. So I love getting a GGT, especially in these cholestatic babies. I'm going to ask you what's a GGT. I'm also going to ask you what the ALKFOS is, because the ALKFOS is also going to tell me about the integrity of the bile duct. Now, and just an ALKFOS, unfortunately, in the pediatric age groups, right? It's not going to tell me much because we see them elevated all the time. They're growing. So again, I'm going to want that GGT to pair it with that, that ALKFOS. If they're both elevated, I'm going to worry a little bit more. The ALKFOS is elevated, but the GGT is normal. I'm going to scratch my head. There are some genetic diseases that won't elevate your GGT, but in general, we like to see them together elevated. Now, none of those tell me function. Albumin is one of the first ones that tell me function of the liver. The problem with albumin is that it's a negative negative inflammatory marker, right? So you cough three times, it's going to go down. You have three diarrhea episodes, the albumin is going to go down. And that doesn't mean that you have liver failure. So it's harder to trend, but it really only comes from the liver. Bilirubin tells me about function. I love bilirubin. Now, one that we typically don't include in our LFTs, but really is function and my favorite is INR. So in general, if a kid is looking ill and you're calling me as a consult from the ER, for example, I'm going to ask you what that INR is. Because if the INR is normal, even if the kid is ill, yes, maybe we'll admit them to the floor to observe. But if the INR is high, they might be needing to go to the intensive care unit to see what's going on. They might, be, they might need some vitamin supplementation and that can be another whole different conversation. But um, why I mentioned this is because these are my ABCs of the liver. Of the liver function is albumin, bilirubin, and coax. I'm going to need those three to assess function of the liver. Forget about the ALT and AST. Even though I love them, I need to know what the function is and I cannot tell you just with an ALT and an AST. 
And two quick questions on that. If you have a direct, so I guess, would you pull the trigger on that when you have a direct hyperbilirubinemia? That's when you would do coax? Or is this some uh, the initial workup for any jaundice child? Yeah, no, just with a cholestatic process. I don't Beautiful. think that you need an INR with an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And I, the other question, I remember we started having a movement of doing, this is more on the adult side, but a thrombin time um, mm-hmm. as opposed to INR. Is that another blood test that is in favor, not in favor, used ever? Great question. So it's because um, all those factors that are being produced in the liver, right? Like your INR is a reflection of, um, and they love asking this question on the boards. Like since I was a medical student, like what factors are produced in the liver? 10, 9, 7, 2, 5, right? <laughs> so those are the ones that, um, again, are produced only in the liver and they drive your INR. But the liver produces other things like protein C, protein S, that thrombin fibrinogen that um, you can get levels of and they can tell you about the function of the liver. Um, and then you can combine them with the INR. Now, sorry, going back to the um, why some people add them is because for your INR to be a good reflection of function of the liver, you also need to have a good level of vitamin K in your body. So you need vitamin K for those factors to be able to work appropriately for that INR to be normal. So if you have a cholestatic process, for example, um, you're not going to be able to absorb vitamin K. So your INR might be a little, might be elevated on really secondary to vitamin K deficiency. So that's why you add other labs to see, oh, is this INR real? But to me, just give them vitamin K. I don't think that clinically you need to add more labs when you already have a picture um, that you can easily resolve with vitamin K. Now, you have to give that vitamin K IV or IM. If you give it through the mouth, that cholestatic process, you're going to poop it out so it doesn't correct. So it has to be um, IV or IM. Now, what are some other labs that we might be seeing here? Like like if I get a CBC, would that be useful? Like I'll see a white count with a viral infection or low platelets because they're cirrhotic already. Like would that be useful, getting blood smears? And are you sending for other things? Like am I, are you getting like copper stuff, plasm, you know, alpha-1 antitrypsin? Like is this part of your, your workup, especially if you don't have much of a history? Like you know, say the, the kid's adopted and you don't have a history or or it's, their parents aren't available or just don't know their history. Like is, is that – I mean, is that, can you shotgun this with those, those? So CDC definitely is always helpful. I mean, that um, will give you a little bit of information maybe about hemolysis too, right? If that hemoglobin is down. But if you have pancytopenia, um, some people, you know, worry that this is cancer, but it can be sequestration from splenomegaly, right? So yes, we love CBCs. Um, in terms of what extra workup do you send right away, um, it really depends on how quickly you need an answer, right? There's a lot of diseases that are self-resolving. Even some of your hepatitis actually can be uh, self-resolving depending on the age. And I mean, hepatitis by infections, right? Now, do you have to jump and send uh, viral studies on every child? Not necessarily. But in general, for a cholestatic process, depending on the age, um, you send different things. So for a newborn, for example, I would send uh, thyroid studies, actually, and also alpha-1 antitrypsin. For an older child that has never been jaundiced, I probably won't send alpha-1 antitrypsin, for example, but I would probably send right away my autoimmune hepatitis panel and then my Wilson screening as well, hemochromatosis also screening. Hepatitis B and C, depending on the uh, exposure. So if you have uh, that adopted child that you don't have a history, I'll probably send hepatitis B and C right away, uh, regardless of the age. 
um, or if there was an exposure, let's say that the child was um, an IV drug user, that we have a lot like that in Seattle, then their risk factors are different. So probably I'll send them um, a hepatitis B and C right away. So goes back to great history, great physical exam, gather as much information as you can about possible risk factors and exposures, and then um, along with your age, and you can start sorting the differential. If I'm worried about, like, say, Wilson's disease or something like that, would you go, would you order the serum plasm and copper first, or would you just get, get a slit lamp and just look, look for those Kaiser rings, and if they're gone, you're, you're, you don't have to worry about the expensive serum plasm or something like that, like... Yeah, so for Wilson's disease, actually, um, there's great guidelines in the adult literature. Actually, the ASLD um, has great guidelines for the evaluation of Wilson's disease. And we pseudo-apply them for pediatrics, but in general, we just start with aceroloplasmin. Now, in Wilson's, very interestingly, this is another pearl. Patients tend to have low ALK-FOS. So let's say that I have a patient that presents to the ICU in liver failure and I see a low ALK-FOS. I'm going to tell the residents, oh, this sounds like Wilson's. And they're going to be like, oh my God, how do you know? I'm like, get a seroloplasmin right away. I might not tell them right away that oh, it's because their ALK-FOS, ALKFOS was low and I'm going to like sound really, really smart. But those are little pearls that we see in this type of patients. But for Wilson specifically, there's really good guidelines on the ASLD on how to do the order because it actually also includes genetic testing for that disease versus we don't necessarily do genetic testing in other cholestatic processes um, right away for their assessment. So Wilson's is a little bit different, but there's really good adult guidelines that then we um, apply in pediatrics following the recommendations. And so for one of these patients, let's say I have in clinic, they're a little yellow, we get it, and it is a direct hyperbilirubinemia or conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, and I'm doing some of these focused workups, are there or what are the red flags that make me say, this should no longer be an outpatient workup? You know, we need to either send them into the emergency department or maybe uh, immediate with a hepatologist. What are some of these red flags that make me worry that this should no longer be outpatient management? So clearly, if the patient is ill-appearing, they're not staying hydrated, they should come into the ER. Because your liver, that's the function of the liver, right? To metabolize stuff and to help you with your digestion. So if you have a severe inflammation of their liver that you're not even wanting to eat or drink, they should be evaluated. Now, on your labs, going back to the function of the liver, you have major signs of dysfunction. You have a coagulopathy, a low albumin. They should be evaluated right away so that they can get, for example, that IM vitamin K and see if that INR corrects. Um, if you have a patient with altered mental status, forget it. They have to go to the emergency room. That can be a sign of encephalopathy. But let's say on the contrary, the good news, they're well-appearing. They're just, they had an infection last week and you get some labs, the liver enzymes are elevated, that bilirubin is high but they're staying hydrated, they're great, they have great follow-up plan. Follow them in 48, 72 hours and repeat those labs. And maybe you forgot to add an INR right away. Then get that INR three days later and see what it is. Oh, it's elevated, send them to the ER. It's normal, then maybe let's trend the labs again in a week. So that's the importance also of following these patients if they're well-appearing. Don't just let them go, just bring them back, especially if they're after an illness and they're recovering or maybe after an illness, but they're not recovering and they're getting worse. So they might need to be evaluated in the emergency room. 
Um, so, you know, let's say we've got this kid in the clinic and we drew these labs and it's conjugated, but they don't look ill-appearing enough to have to go to the ER. At what point do I, you know, continue the workup as a PCP? And at what point do I say, you know, this is really out of my expertise, I should refer to a hepatologist? Follow that patient up, you know, bring them back two to three days and repeat labs. Get that full set of function and see where we are. If that be the rumen is coming down, it may be that it self-resolves and it may be that, you know, again, going back, they had an infection, the liver got a little bit riled up and it's going to recover. But if you bring them back three or four days after and that bilirubin is still rising, even if the patient looks good, you should at that point consider a consultation with a hepatologist so that, you know, if it's something like an autoimmune hepatitis, you can treat right away and get that workup going. Because at that point, if you already got all the labs, Maybe some of them are cooking, but if there's already signs of liver dysfunction, maybe we might just get a liver biopsy and just move on so that we don't um, miss any diagnosis that can be treated right away. Yeah. And kind of on related to that note, the clinic that I work at sees a lot of children of color and families of color. And I think there's a lot of health inequity when we talk about even from assessing jaundice like you touched on earlier, but obviously also massive health inequity in different liver diseases. And I was wondering if you could touch a bit on that, like if it's simple things like how to look for jaundice in a darker skinned individual or what inequities you see and what ways you feel like are efficient to address them. Yes, and it's such a big problem that we see um, even assessing jaundice, like you said. Um, physical exam is sometimes unfortunately so overlooked. So I always recommend a full physical exam on everybody because not only um, you can miss jaundice on the color of their skin, but if you see a child with splenomegaly, right, you have to think about um, what else could we be missing. So going back on how to assess jaundice, look at their eyeballs. Even if you have that newborn that's sleeping in clinic that you don't really want to wake them up, do wake them up and apologize to the mom because you really want to take a look at their eyes, look at their insides or the, of their mouths when they're um, crying because really you don't want to miss jaundice just because their skin looks okay. Or Hispanics, we sometimes tend to have a little bit of a yellow uh, a tint to our skin. So, um, or that olive kind of skin. And you don't want to assume that that's their, uh, the color of their skin. You really want to do a thorough physical exam. Another thing that you can do is actually press on their skin. If you press on their skin, um, if you press actually on your skin right now, you're going to see that it looks kind of white. If you have jaundice, it's going to look yellow. So that's another good pearl to learn about physical exam. Another problem that we're seeing nowadays with COVID, unfortunately, is that a lot of people are delaying their well child checks or they're delaying their um, routine follow-ups with their doctors until it's too late. So we unfortunately have seen a little bit more late biliary atricias, for example, because they've missed that two-month-old well child check and now they're past their 60 days of life that we talked about, the Kasai. So I always tell pediatricians, if you see that child after their two-week-old well-child check that most people do, and they're jaundiced at that point, make sure that you bring them, bring them back at that one-month well-child check and see if they're still jaundiced. You don't want to wait until they're two-month and assume that it's breast milk or breastfeeding jaundice. Bring them back and get labs sooner because it can be really catastrophic to miss that appointment. And we've seen that in the COVID era, unfortunately, more and more. Because people just unfortunately don't have the same access to healthcare as it was before. Great. Thank you for, yeah, go ahead, Angela. Oh, I was just going to say, and I, I think this is obviously a, a big topic outside of the Just Go with this episode, but 
Um, what kind of like racial inequities do you see in, you know, like whether it's treatments, like who gets transplants or other diseases, um, you know, that you see in your clinic? And again, obviously a huge topic, but I'm curious to, you know, what you see and what you feel like we as PCPs or generalists could do. Oh, ladies, so many inequities. <laughs> this is like a, a days and days and days worth of um, conversations. And we can even split them in like the transplant world, right? Like even outcomes are unfortunately tied to your uh, ethnic background, your socioeconomic status. And fortunately, uh, UNOS, uh, the United Network for Organ Sharing, is addressing that. They know that that is happening and they're trying to um, create policies for organ access, for example, like, um, oof, such a loaded question. Um, but I think the first part as physicians is that we have to acknowledge that everybody has their own bias, right? Everybody examines their patients and gets that history based on your own bias. And as we individually acknowledge that, then that can help um, with some of the disparities that we see, because unfortunately, we see it in so many diseases in the liver world, even something as benign, some people think as fatty liver disease, for example, right? Like we're like, oh, it's just fatty liver. But unfortunately, fatty liver that we see in the pediatric world will turn into fatty liver in the adult world. And those are the adults that are now needing the most liver transplants and they don't get transplanted, they're obese, they have other comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension. And most of them, unfortunately, are Hispanic that they just got dismissed. They're like, oh, whatever, you know, they're Hispanic, they're just fatty liver. And then we're going to see this um, epidemic of people needing liver transplants and not being able to get them. I do think that we probably need to bring you back at some point to talk about, you know, cirrhosis and liver transplant a little more. I think this would be a really great topic for our listeners. Uh, would you come back if, if we brought you yeah, back? Yeah. Fatty liver I would disease. love to come back. Love I love topic. fatty liver. That's that, my, yeah. oh my God. I, I never know like what to do passion. with that. So yeah, that uh, this, let's do it. <laughs> Don't tell them not to eat rice. Just, yeah. you know, that's like our thing. Just maybe limit it a little bit, but don't eliminate our rice. That's the only thing I eat every day. So that's like my <laughs> contribution there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Excellent. It's a, it's a teaser pearl. Um, great. Well, we've talked a lot about the approach to hyperbilirubinemia, uh, history, physical, the pathophysiology treatment. This has been incredible. If you were to kind of summarize, what do you think some of the big take-home points are that you want listeners to, to walk away with uh, when talking about hyperbilirubinemia? Yes. The first thing is focus on your history and physical exam, right? Like get as much history as you can. It's going to be so helpful in the long run. But the most important really is fractionate that bilirubin. Don't assume that the John, this is direct or indirect. You need to see the numbers. So you really need to get that either direct or conjugated component and that indirect so that you can help um, yourself in kind of targeting the differential. And if it's a cholestatic or direct hyperbilirubinemia, probably expand that workup and get function of the liver so that you can get some more information on the disease process and how worried you should be right away. Awesome. Thank you so much. Before we say goodbye to you, do you have anything you want to plug to the audience? Like, do you have your own Instagram that you want to sh tell us about or anything else you want to plug? 
<laughs> no, like I said, I'm a geriatric millennial. I, I do use my Insta, but just to scroll and like funny stuff. But um, no, I'm just, it's a pleasure to be here. And I love teaching. And the more that we can educate everybody about the importance of assessing a newborn with jaundice um, early on so that we don't miss that biliary atresia, for example. And don't dismiss those fatty livers. They're very important too. Um, yeah, I just love teaching everybody. So thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. This has been wonderful. We really appreciate you. Thank you, guys. This has been another episode of The Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any of your podcast platforms. We also take email, thecribsiders at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Angela Zane, our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Maser. I have been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Angela Zane. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.